Our God, we give you thanks for this time together to consider your word. We ask now that you would give us fresh ears and fresh eyes to see. Like a good friend that we've seen before, yet every time we see them, our, our joy is increased. So we've seen the face of Jesus, and we've seen the gospel from this place before, and yet we ask that in seeing him afresh and anew, you would bring new joy and new delight to our hearts, a new desperation for him, that we would cling closer to Jesus than we did before we got here. We ask that you would transform us by your word, particularly with a greater love for, dependence on, and faith in the Lord Jesus. It's in his name and for his glory that we pray. Amen. Okay, let me tell you a story. There was once a people who were enslaved. They were captives trapped under a wicked ruler that they were powerless to defeat. Their ruler, their enemy, was a rebel against God, and defying God, he ruthlessly sought to destroy them. And the people suffered under his rule. They languished in bitter captivity. Their lives were living hells. And when it seemed like all hope was lost and their end was sure and death was certain, a child was born. A baby came. A baby, and this was no ordinary baby. This child was special. He would grow up to be the Savior, a deliverer of God's people. And his birth posed such a threat to this ruler that in, he attempted to kill this baby from his birth. But God protected him. God rescued him because God was going to use him to rescue many. And when he had grown with many signs and wonders, he proved that God had sent him to save God's people. So that finally, through the shedding of the blood of the Lamb, this deliverer defeated God's enemy and led the people out of bondage. And they crossed over from death to life. And through this deliverer, God made a way so that he would live with his people and he would be their God and they would be his people forever. Now, what story am I telling? What's the name of the deliverer? It, it depends. It depends on who you ask. Because if you grabbed a Bible and you asked someone who was in living in this half of the Bible, or if you're here and you've seen Prince of Egypt or the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston, you would go, that's easy, cheesecake, no problem, that's Moses. And you might go on to describe the story of Pharaoh and Egypt and slavery and the Exodus. But if you're here and you're living on, as we are, this half of the Bible, in the years after Jesus, or if you've been to Seven Mile Road and you've heard this before, you'd say, that's easy, no problem. We know what that story is. That's Jesus. And you would start to tell the story of sin and Satan and Jesus and death and resurrection, the good news that we call the gospel. And if you could get both these guys into the same room and you could hear their conversation, it would go something like this, that the guy from this half of the Bible would hear that story and understand his own story so much better because he begins to see where this is all going. And this half would look back and hear this story and understand his own story so much better because he's understood where it's come from. And they would begin to describe a story that sounds very sim similar about slavery and a savior and salvation. And this one would rejoice to hear where his salvation had come from. And this one would rejoice to hear where his salvation was going. 
And if the Holy Spirit were present, both would rejoice in the work that God had done. And Semar wrote, here's what we're doing. In some ways, this whole series is our attempt to stand perfectly still in the middle and listen to that conversation. To listen to this one talk to this one and to this one talk to this one and to see how these two halves fit, right? In some ways, we're sort of stepping back from the whole thing and saying, how does this half fit with this half? And I guess that's a bigger way of saying, what is this whole book about? Is there something that ties the whole thing together? Because there's a lot of pieces. Is there something that brings it all together, that gives unity to both halves? And, and if you step back far enough, I guess then you're asking, what is the whole thing about? And, and that's another way of saying, what is Christianity about? What, what is this whole thing? What is Christianity about? And, and one of the most interesting things is whether you're here and you're a Christian or whether you're here and you're not a Christian, Sometimes we view the book the same way, or at least at certain points we've all read it the same way, which is if you asked what is this all about, most of us would say this is a guide for our life. So this tells me how I'm supposed to live and what I'm supposed to do and what God requires of me. And so we'd boil Christianity down to you want to get right with God, read the book. And if you do what it says, you'll be accepted by God. And yet the stories we're going to consider push us to consider there's something bigger than that. That the book has much more to tell than what you need to do to get with God. And so that's what we want to ask. What's the book about? What's Christianity about? And today's story is especially going to help us. If you've been with us through this series called Shadows, you've known that we've walked through Adam and Abel and Noah and Isaac and Joseph. And today we get to hear the story of Moses. His story is in the second book of the Bible. It's in Exodus. And if you want to know what the whole book is about, if you want to know what this whole book is about, you just need to read this story. If you want to know what all of Christianity is about, it's right here in Moses' story in Exodus. And what you'll find is there's slavery, and there's a savior, and there's salvation. There's slavery, there's a savior, there's salvation. The preacher in me couldn't help but come up with three S's. This is the kind of stuff we pathetic preachers get really excited about. So I hope you appreciate the genius of what I just said, right? There's slavery, a savior, and salvation. Or in common language, we'd say, look, the Bible's saying there's a problem, there's a solution, and there's a result, right? That the human condition has a problem that all of us have. There's a solution that all of us can enjoy, and there's a result that all of us can share in. So here's the first one. What's our problem? What's the problem to our core? It's going to say slavery. Slavery. When you read Exodus, if you open to the first chapter and the story of Exodus begins, it picks up right where we left off last week. So if you were here last week, we talked through Joseph. And God had raised up this one young man, sold by his brothers, to become this prince of Egypt. And God raised him so that he essentially becomes a savior for the whole world. The whole world is struggling in famine for bread. He becomes this savior that God had providentially raised up. He then gets reunited with his brothers who had sold him into slavery. And he basically foots the bill for all of them. Them, their wives, their children, everyone to come down to Egypt. He provides them the best homes. And we read in Exodus 1 that 70 of these folks come down to Egypt. 70 of them come there. But while they're there, they reproduce like rabbits. It's like 
Charlie's and Julie's everywhere. Everyone's got five or six kids, right? And so this number goes from 70 to swelling to over a million people real quick. And this growing immigrant population becomes a real threat to the Egyptians. These foreigners are in our land. They've grown so many and so much. They've grown so fast and so vast. Something's got to be done. So Exodus 1 verse 8, this is what it says. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. So he doesn't know the old stories of how Israel's friend and not foe. He doesn't know any of that. And he said to his people, the Egyptians, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Now, here's what's happening. Exodus isn't wasting any time at all to tell you here's the problem. The people of God find themselves in slavery. So it gives you a picture of what this is like. They've got shackles on their hands and chains on their feet and a whip that's being applied to their back and a harsh master that is ruling over them and they are powerless here. They can't revolt. They can't overthrow. They are captive to a power that is much stronger than them and they cannot do anything to set themselves free. They cannot do anything to get out, to break away. They are in captivity. And the interesting thing that you learn as you read through Exodus is that as the story continues, you begin to see how deeply embedded this slavery actually is. What you actually see is that their slavery is not just out here, but it's worked its way all the way to in here. It's not just that they're slaves outside, it's that they're slaves to the core. They really see themselves as slaves because the most oddest thing happens as you keep reading the story. Spoiler alert, it's that God sets them free, right? God, that's why it's called Exodus. They're going to get out. They're going to leave. And yet even after they get out, they say the oddest thing. Over and over again, there's times where they go, we should just go back. And you got to put that together. Wait, you just read what happened to them. Harsh lives, bitter lives, slavery. And yet every now and then they go, we should just go back. Right? They, they come to this scene where at the Red Sea and there's Pharaoh chasing after them. So their former master let them go, changed his mind, he's barreling down. At that moment they go, we should have just been back there. Like when their old master tugs back at them, they fold, they collapse, they go, we should just go back. Or there'll be other scenes where they look longingly back to Egypt. And what you begin to discover is, here's why. It's because taking them out of Egypt is one thing, but it's a much longer and much harder process to take Egypt out of them, right? It was one thing to get them out of Egypt. It's going to take the rest of the book, the big book, to get Egypt out of them because they're slaves shackled not just out here. They're slaves all the way in here. Their problem is that this slavery is deeply embedded. And the New Testament... The second half of the Bible sees that and jumps all over it and says, that's exactly right. 
That's exactly it. That's a picture of all of our conditions. Right? The New Testament could just describe that, but a picture's worth a thousand words. And so the New Testament says, you want to know what your condition's like? Read Exodus. Because when you see their shackles, when you see their chains, when you feel the whip, when you hear the master barking orders, and when you see them powerless to break themselves out, or to change, or to set free themselves, you get a picture of all of our condition. And the New Testament is going to say, in other words, Israel's slavery is a shadow of all of our slavery in sin. And our problem is that we have a deeply embedded relationship with sin. Now that can sound like religious talk, so I want you to hear that again. We have a deeply embedded relationship with sin, a deep, not just out here, but in here, slavery to sin. You'll either dismiss that as just religious talk or think I'm exaggerating. So a picture is worth a thousand words. So let me give you a picture, one example of this. I read this week an article about the effect of internet pornography on the brain. So not just on the soul, so that what you would dismiss as just Christian talk. Internet pornography and its effect on the brain. So in that one, and I could probably just as faithfully say, at the enslaving power of internet pornography. Here's what it said, that neurological research has revealed that the effect of porn on the brain is as potent or if not more than cocaine or heroin. That the same things that happen in your brain when someone is taking cocaine or heroin happens in the same way when someone is viewing porn. That the same chemicals spike the way that it does. So your dopamine levels in your brain spike with cocaine in matters and ways that are same and similar to one who is viewing pornography. A, a doctor from Yale wrote this. This is not a Christian article. This is a published journal. A doctor from Yale said this. It's as though we have devised a form of heroin a hundred times more powerful than before, usable in the privacy of one's own home, and injected directly to the brain through the eyes. The article goes on to say, not only, and you got to hear this, not only does it spike dopamine in your brain the way that cocaine or heroin would, but that this thing physically alters brain matter in your brain. That viewing it enough physically alters your brain. So the example is, imagine your brain is like a forest, and there's a hiker walking through, and if he travels a certain path long enough and enough times, it creates a new path. And the article is saying that is what we have done with the brain. That viewing pornography enough times has literally created new physiological and neurological pathways that did not previously exist. So that more porn and extreme porn is needed to cause the same chemical reaction that happened before. Do you hear what we're saying? We have physically altered our brain through an addiction that then fuels and feeds the addiction even more. And it gets worse. Because here, this quote in the rest of the article of not only the effect of this, but its permanence. Listen to this. Another aspect of pornography addiction that surpasses the addictive and harmful characteristics of chemical substance abuse is its permanence. While substances can be metabolized out of the body, Pornographic images cannot be metabolized out of the brain because pornographic images are stored in the brain's memory. 
While substance abusers may cause permanent harm to their bodies or brains from drug use, the substance itself does not remain in the body after it has been metabolized out of the body. But with pornography, there is no time frame of abstinence that can erase the pornographic reels of images in the brain that can continue to feel, fuel the addictive cycle. It's saying, look, when a junkie gets high, he can do damage to himself, but eventually it'll be metabolized out of his body. Cocaine won't live there forever. And yet pornography has a way of sticking there so that a decade later, you still remember what you saw. And that stuck permanent image fuels the very thing that you're trying to run from. You hear that and I think you go, oh God, what have we done to ourselves? How enslaved are we that now the enemy is within my own flesh that I've fed this thing and made myself a slave? And listen to me, that's just one example of a sin. Because all sin works that same exact way. That's just one Right? All sin. Listen, you've got other things. Maybe porn isn't your drug of choice. Maybe you've got something else. But I'll tell you what, you use it thinking that you're going to manipulate it and use it to serve you. It will never stop until you serve it. That's the way sin works. You think you're going to manage this thing so that you can control it. It won't stop till it controls you. Sin pretends to be a good servant for a little while. It won't stop till it becomes your master and you become its slave. That's the way that it works. When you think of a junkie, hear me, you picture a junkie. You think of someone so strung out, so desperate for the next high, that he will do anything for it. It doesn't matter. Rationality goes out the window. He'll sell out his family. He won't take care of his kids or his wife. He'll sacrifice all those things because he needs a high. You know the only problem is? I know of CEOs that have done the same thing, except they've done it for power. I know of pastors who do the same thing, except they do it for recognition. That we'll sacrifice family, we'll work to no end for, for whatever we think is the thing we need most. If, if security is your thing, then you go, okay, I need money because I need security. And it doesn't matter what I give up to get more of it because I need it. You know what that means? That means you're a junkie. It's just you've got a more respectable sin. You've just got a more acceptable addiction. And, and the scripture is coming along and saying, we're all sin addicts. It's just we've got different drugs of choice, but we're all enslaved. All feel the weight of these sins that we cannot seem to break free from. And, and here's how it gets worse. It's a deeply embedded slavery. What that means is it's not just out here, it's in here, so that... Some of you in this room are Christians, right? You know Jesus. Jesus has set you free. And yet, if you're honest, you go, I still feel like that a lot. If you're honest, you go, this thing is in me. Because then you go, I get it. It doesn't make sense when I read Israel. Why would you want to go back? But I can relate more than I'd like to admit. I know what I've been set free from. And yet, when those old masters tug, I seem to feel like life was so much better back then, and I longingly look back to go back. So much so that you feel this schizophrenia that you even begin to wonder, am I really free? 
Am I really a Christian? Is this really true? Or am I, am I faking all of this? And you've got this dual sort of reality where you don't even know what your identity is. Because if I am free in Jesus, I feel an awful lot like a slave. And here's the thing. Christianity is coming along and saying, this, is, this war that's happening in you, so much of what Christianity is, is learning to become who you already are. What the Christian experience, what this struggle is, is learning to become who you already are, that Jesus really has set you free. And what remains is for you to learn to walk out in the freedom that he has provided for you. We are learning, painfully slow sometimes, how to become what we are. I'll give you an example. In U.S. history, the Emancipation Proclamation was signed. When it was signed, all slaves were legally what? Free. All slaves were legally free. You know what you found the next morning? Every slave working just like he had done before. In fact, you know what you found even after the Civil War was done? Slaves on plantations working just like they had done before. And if one of those slaves cried out and said, oh, if someone would set me free, you'd have to go to them and say, there's nothing left to be done. There's no new freedom. To you are free. What remains is for you to learn to walk in the freedom that has been purchased for you. Christianity is saying, God has made you something now when he set you free. And the rest of your life is learning to live that out, to walk that out. It's like this. One preacher gave this wonderful illustration. He said, imagine a man who adopted a child solely for his own evil purposes. He wasn't a good dad. He just wanted something to carry out his pleasures. So he adopts a, a boy and, and abuses him and hurts him and doesn't feed him and doesn't clothe him and doesn't care for him and doesn't provide for him. He beats him and, and puts out cigarettes on him. And imagine that Child Protective Services comes and rescues that boy from that home and now gives him a new family and puts him in with a good dad and a good family. And, and imagine that boy then living in that new home and what he'd be like. The dad walks into the bedroom and he's sleeping on the floor and the dad has to tell him, you don't have to do that anymore. This bed is for you. You're in a new family. I love you. This is where you belong. Or he's at the breakfast table and there's a feast there, but he's sneaking food from his jacket. And the dad's going to have to say, you don't have to do that anymore. This is for you. I love you. You're in a new family. Or when the dad goes to hug him, he flinches and he's ready and he's a bit defensive. And the dad says, you don't have to do that anymore. I'm not going to hurt you. I love you. You're in a new family. That boy's entire story is going to be to do what? To learn to become who he is. He doesn't have to work anymore to be a son. He, that's already done. He got adopted. What he's now got to do is learn to live out who he is. So then the prayer sort of changes from, Lord, would you please set me free from this thing to, Lord, you've set me free. For some reason, I keep going back. Would you help me to be who you made me? Would you help me to become what I already am through you? You get a sense for how deeply embedded this slavery is. And so then Exodus is going to say, if you get that, then the question is going to be, then what can save you from that? If, if that's our problem, our problem is a deeply embedded 
slavery to sin, then the question is going to be, what's the solution? What can save us from that? What do we need? And Exodus is going to come and say, you need a savior. If you're in slavery, what you need is a savior. So you keep reading Exodus. And now you're in chapter 2 and you find out into this horrible slavery, a child is born. And if you read the story, you go, this paranoid pharaoh thinks that every new birth is a potential threat to his throne. So he's crazy, out of his mind, thinking every child represents a threat to his throne. So in this paranoid fear, he orders an edict that all the infant boys should be killed. You keep reading the story and you find one mom takes her son and puts him in a little basket. And as you read the description, it's almost like she builds a little ark. And it's Moses writing Genesis, just like he wrote Exodus. And it's almost like you can't help but think of a little Noah in a little ark, another little savior. So here's this little boy put in a little ark, cast out into the waters, and she trusts God with him. And wouldn't you know, the basket lands where? Exactly at Pharaoh's doorstep. So much so that Pharaoh's own daughter swoops this basket in, takes this baby, names him Moses, and it ends up, and this is the funniest part of the story, that Pharaoh ends up footing the bill for room and board and education for the very man that was going to undo him. It's almost like God is teasing you in the story and poking fun at Pharaoh and going, this guy is a few bricks short of a pyramid, right? Because, listen, if he didn't do anything, then Moses would have just grown up like a slave. But by his edict, guess what happens? Moses is cast onto the waters, and now he ends up footing the bill for the man that's going to undo him. And God's going, do you see this? I'm going to use his very devices to undo him. God's going to have the last word and the last laugh in this. And so now, Pharaoh raises a savior. Pharaoh raises a deliverer. And so Moses grows up in the palace as a prince of Egypt, and yet he sees the suffering of this people and their slavery, and he identifies with them. So he leaves his comforts to go and be for them. And hardwired into him is this instinct to be a savior, to be a deliverer, so much so that the text tells us one day he sees this Egyptian mercilessly beating a slave, And he can't help himself. He looks this way and he looks that way. He sees the coast is clear and he goes and he strangles this man. He kills him. Word gets out that now he's a murderer and now Moses is forced to be a fugitive. He's on the run. Many years pass, 40 to be exact. And 40 years later, God shows up to Moses on a mountain and calls him to be a deliverer. And it's as if Moses is told, listen, this is not going to happen by your hand by you going up to one Egyptian after another and and stealthily strangling them. This is going to happen by my outstretched hand. You're going to see my salvation by my power, by my hand, and so he's to go. And so he goes and he approaches Pharaoh, and if you've read the story, you know Pharaoh will not let them go. One time, two times, nine times, ten plagues visit the land. And it all sort of reaches a culmination and climax with this final plague. God basically comes to Pharaoh and says, listen, Israel is my firstborn son. If you won't let me have my firstborn, I'm going to take yours. And so he promises them, listen, if you don't let Israel go, all the firstborn sons in this wicked land will die. There's just one problem for Israel. They are as sinful as Egypt is. And so if judgment is going to come on the land and require the death of some, they're just as much in trouble. And so God provides a way where he says, listen, what you're to do is you're to kill a lamb, 
Another will take your place. And you are to apply its door, its blood, to the doorframe of your home, so that when I come in wrath, all the places that are protected under the blood of the Lamb will be saved. And my wrath will pass over, and judgment will fall, but you will be spared. And with this final plague, listen, without so much as lifting a sword, without so much as throwing a spear, without so much as lifting a pinky of their own, God walks them out of the most powerful nation in the world and sets them free. And if our two guys came back again from this half of the Bible and this half of the Bible, this guy here in the New Testament would be saying to the other, listen, I love your story. And your Moses is awesome, but I have a better Moses because I have an even better story. His name is Jesus. And he would go on to say, just like your Moses, a crazy paranoid king tried to kill our Jesus when he was just an infant and God rescued him because God was going to rescue many through him. In fact, it's almost ironic. He escapes to Egypt so that it's out of Egypt that this Jesus will come also. And just like your Moses, he too left a palace and comfort and a kingdom to identify himself with a suffering and enslaved people. And just like your Moses, he performed signs and wonders proving that he had been sent by God to rescue God's people. Except where your Moses murdered to save some, our better Moses was murdered to save all. And except where your Moses and all the firstborn were spared by the blood of the Lamb, he was God's firstborn. And he was judged and he was crushed so that we might be spared. And it's actually under the protection of his blood that we are saved. It's that he would take on our sin, that one had to die, another to take our place, and lambs would no longer do, and so he took our place for our sins so that God's wrath might pass over. And where your Moses saved Israel from Egypt, our better Moses saves all people in all the world from sin. Here's the point. If Israel's slavery is a shadow of our embedded slavery, then Israel's savior is a shadow of our better and greater savior, Jesus Christ. Now here's the last thing. The story's gonna say, here's your problem. It's slavery. That's your condition. Here's the solution. There's a savior. And it's gonna end by saying, well, what does all of that accomplish? And it accomplishes salvation. Here's the last thing I wanna say and then we'll be done. A picture's worth a thousand words, right? So you could describe salvation. I could define salvation. But Exodus does us a favor in giving us a picture of salvation so that you get a feel for what it is and what it looks like. You want to know what salvation is? It's seen perfectly in Exodus 14. The scene there is they come to the Red Sea. And to summarize for the sake of time, what happens is, again, Pharaoh's changed his mind. So now he's barreling down on them. There's a sea in front of them, mountains to the side of them. They're sitting ducks. They're as good as dead. And in that moment, through no work of their own, God parts the sea. Parts the sea so that they cross over from death to life on dry land. And if you want to know what salvation is, one preacher described this perfectly well. He said, that's exactly it. It's crossing over. It's, I was in death, now I'm in life. I was in this kingdom, now I'm in that kingdom. 
I was under this master, now I live with this father. I was in darkness, now I am in light. It is that instantaneous crossing over. It's not I am through one good work after another building a small bridge over. It is I have been brought over from this land to this land, and it's happened like that. Hear me, it's, it's just like that. You want to know what salvation is? You get saved. It's like that. It's not a process that you slowly work on. That's what all the worldviews will tell you. You slowly, one after another, pylon after pylon, bridge, build a good bridge over. That's not Christianity. Because the book is coming and saying, do you see that? They were here, dead, done, and then they were here, alive and free. I read of a preacher named Martin Lloyd-Jones. He said he used to use this test where he was trying to discern the spirituality of people, see where they were at. And he would come to people and he'd say, are you a Christian? Are you a Christian today? And he said many, many people would respond with a bit of modesty saying, I'm trying. And he said the second he heard that, he knew they didn't know the first thing about Christianity. When he heard them say, I'm trying, he said, they don't understand this at all. Because every worldview says you're building a bridge and you're trying as hard as you can to get to the other side. If you're trying, that means you haven't gotten what this is about. This is, I was here. He did something, I'm here. I was dead, he did something. It's not dead corpses trying their best to become alive. It's dead corpses who were resurrected to life. And I was here and now I am here. That's salvation. Salvation is, I have trusted in this Jesus, in my place, for my sins, through no effort and work of my own, so that I have crossed over. Now, there's a lot of trying going on in the rest of my life, but not for salvation, because I got saved like that, because I trusted in him. This preacher named Tim Keller says it wonderfully. He says, you know, this isn't about the quality of their faith. Because if you could put yourself back in Israel, if all of us were walking through that Red Sea, I know there'd be some of us. Dennis would be walking across going, this is amazing. Look at what God is doing. This is awesome. God is saving. I would be going, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. This thing is going to collapse. This thing is, this is a joke. Why did we do this? Whose idea was this? And you know what? At the end of the day, he'd be there and I'd be there. Because... It does not even depend on the strength of my faith, but in the object of my faith. And it's him. He crossed us over. I'm done thinking this is about me. If you go, but don't you have to do something? Don't, don't you have to do something? Isn't the, the Bible's a really big book. Isn't it about a bunch of stuff you've got to do? I would say back to you, here's what I love about Exodus more than anything else. One last thing I'll say and then we'll be done. What I love about Exodus more than anything else is do you know when the law is given? The law is given in chapter 20. You know where we are? Chapter 14. You know why I love that? Because if I was writing Exodus, I would have put chapter 20 in chapter 2, meaning I would have told you the people are enslaved. Here's God's law. Do this right and God will rescue you. And if you don't, you're stuck. And that's how the rest of the book would have played out. That's not how this works. Because I don't know about you, but that's the way I think. When I become this, then he's going to accept me and love me. Right? Preachers talk about this all the time, and, and I've always thought this to myself as well. I, I don't know about you, but I've got this future version of me that is going to be so impressive. 
right? It's just a little, I don't know how far it's going to take, but he's coming, and, and he's a bit slimmer. His hair's not thinning. People keep telling me he's aged well. He, he's really good. And this future me is never going to argue with my wife, and I'm always going to be patient with my kids, and my prayer times are just going to be incredible, and my personal sanctification and holiness is just off the charts. And when I become that me, it's going to be like it's Jesus' privilege to love me. Jesus is just going to look at me and go, how could I not, right? Look at you. You're everything I want. And Jesus is going to be so impressed with me and love me so deeply on that day. And the gospel says you could not be further from the truth. It's right here in my mess, in my struggling with my prayer life, in my shortness with my wife, in my impatience with my kids, in my deeply embedded slavery that Jesus has chosen to love me. And that's the version of Ajay he loves, not the figment of my imagination. That perfect Ajay is never coming, so Jesus has chosen to graciously love this one because this is the only one that's real, and this is the one that he loves. And Exodus is teaching you, it's not once you do these things, I'm going to bless you and rescue. It's I've blessed you. I've rescued you. I chose you, and I loved you. So now here's my law because here's what a relationship with me looks like. Here's what faithfulness looks like. So try real hard. Not to be accepted. That's already done. Not to get saved. That's already done. You've crossed over. But here's what it looks like now for us to be one. That's what I love about Exodus. Every other religion and worldview says, keep trying. You're not quite there. Keep trying. But listen to what the better Moses says in John 5 verse 24. Very truly I tell you, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has what? Crossed over from death to life. So here's what Moses and the better Moses and Exodus and the better Exodus is going to ask you this morning. If you're here and you're not a Christian, here's what I want you to ask honestly of your soul. Do you see your slavery Do you see how deeply embedded this thing is? Because you're living for something. It might not be porn. It might be a more respectable, acceptable slave master, but it's a slave master nonetheless. You're living for something, and if that something is not God, then that's your God. And whatever that God is, it's an awful slave master. Do you see your slavery? And if you do, then what are you going to do about it? Because I'll tell you what you're going to do about it. You're either going to try one good work after another to break out of this thing. And that's going to be as futile as Israel trying to overthrow Pharaoh. Or you're going to give up and die and go, this is just who I am. There's no point in fighting. This is me. Or today, you can hear there's a Savior who can pull you out and make you cross over from there to there through no work of your own. And you can trust in him It's not a 12-step process. Christianity is a one-step process. I repent, and he's there. I, I turn, and what I turn to is I turn from all that to him, and I've crossed over. In that one step, I've crossed over from death to life. And if you're here and you are a Christian, would you hear me for a second? You know Jesus, and you know your life is supposed to be free. And you've got this schizophrenia that's going, am I really here or am I still here? Would you let God in a fresh way, this has been my prayer all week, 
it's, it's like these four friends from Boston have come. I've seen their faces before. When I saw them, though, it wasn't commonplace to me. There was fresh joy, new joy, right? When you see a loved one, you might have seen them a million times. When you see them, though, there's a new joy. You've seen Jesus before. If you're here, you're a Christian, you've seen him before. In a fresh and new way, would you let his face look upon you and see that he loves you exactly where you are? Not the future you once you get your act together. Right now, in your mess, in your pit, helpless to save yourself, that's the version of you that he has chosen to love. That's the one that he rescued through no work of your own. And would you begin to start praying, Lord, I'm stuck in this thing. You've already saved me. You've already freed me. Would you help me become who I already am? Here's the point. For us, our slavery was much worse than Israel's. And so we needed a better Moses who offers a better salvation. And that's who Jesus Christ is. Let's pray together. Our Lord, all of us in this room, wherever we are in whatever part of our spiritual journey, would you meet us this morning with a fresh visit and a new visit of your love and grace. We may have never known you or seen you. Would you open our eyes to see the loving face of God our Father who loves us and rescues us while we were still neck deep in sin. It is sin junkies and sin addicts that you love. Would you pull us out from death to life and cross us over in your son? And for those of us that have seen you many times before, would the face of God and Jesus Christ look fresh and new for us in a way that it hasn't in a long time? Would we be powerfully reminded of fresh and anew of his love for us right where we are in a way that moves us with great zeal to obey? Hear us and do more than we knew to ask, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.